I'm Al Filreis, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities. And we hope, game for a poem or a poetic work that interests us some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound archive. Writing.upenn.edu slash Sound. Today I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Wexler studio by Davy Niddle, poet, theorist, scholar, teacher who works at the intersection of queer and trans theory, poetry and poetics, and urban studies who is a reviews editor for Jacket 2 and who runs the City Planning Poetics series here at the Kelly Writers House, who teaches in the Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies and Urban Studies programs at Penn and whose new critical work is forthcoming from WSQ and Modern Language Studies and whose newest essay on James Schuyler's Disability Poetics will soon appear in GLQ. And by Kate Colby, who has had two books out this past year, The Arrangements, a book of poems from Four Way Books and Dream of the Trenches, and a book of literary essays from Noemi Press uh, that was a staff pick at the Paris Review, whose long essay about pigment and not writing about Charles Olson, which she wrote as a Harvard Woodbury Fellow last year, will be coming out very soon in the Chicago Review this fall, and who is taking up the role of book editor at Essay Press. And by Charles Bernstein, poet, critic, theorist, curator, editor, librettist, mentor, teacher, whose recent book of poems is Near Miss, published by Chicago, some of whose letters to poets will soon be available to everyone through a book called The Language Letters, selected 1970s correspondence of Bruce Andrews, Ron Silliman, and Charles Bernstein, edited by Matthew Hoffer and Michael Golston at the University of New Mexico Press 2019, who is with me the founder and co-director of Penn Sound, and who, relevant to today's poem talk, is Hannah Wiener's literary executor, Charles. Welcome back to the Wexler studio. Great to be here. It's good to see you. You look so relaxed. <laughs> That's an illusion, I'm sure. Davey. Hi, Al. Good to see you. Nice to see you, Al. Thanks for waltzing down the walk hanging out a lot here. And Kate, what a pleasure to have you visiting us from Providence, Rhode Island. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. Yeah. And by the time people listen to this poem talk, there will also be available on your Penn Sound page and on the Writer's House page a recording of a reading that will take place a few hours from now. And so we're all looking forward to that. And I hope people will take the cue and go to your Penn Sound page. So... Thank you all. Well, uh, the four of us have gathered here today to talk about Hannah Wiener's clairvoyant journal, a complex work of 1974. We will be discussing two journal entries or prose poems or pages of the text, the April Fool's entry, presumably April 1st, and the entry for April 4th. There's a recent edition of the work that follows the original page design and format of Wiener's TypeScript with her spatial organization intact, which was published in 2014 by Bat in France. Uh, the earlier well-known edition was published by Angel Hair Books in 1978. Hannah Wiener's Pen Sound page, which is largely the work of our pal here, Charles Bernstein, who, as I mentioned, has been entrusted with the Hannah Wiener Literary Estate, includes several readings and performances from this work. Our two entries 
were among the March and April pages or journal entries performed by Regina Beck, variously by Regina Beck, uh, Sharon Matlin, Peggy DeCourcy, and Hannah Weiner herself, originally issued as an audio cassette by New Wilderness Audiographics in 1978. So now let's listen to Hannah and her friends collaboratively perform the April 1st and April 4th entries of Clairvoyant Journal. April 1974, Clairvoyant Journals. I see words. The capitals are read by Sharon Matlin. The underlines read by Regina Beck. Myself. I begins. April Fool. Brave girl. Jana. A lot of favorites. Too soon. Shower. Skipping around today. Not loud. What to do? Getting ready to Too leave. Too soon. Colorful. Doesn't like your t-shirt. Oh, Hannah, the leave. spacing on the typewriter. Big improvement. Shit. Isn't working. Go before Friday. Three months. Go. Wear a woolen shirt. Listen, this is crazy. Reese is going to Hatha yoga class at six. Is that... Go at six. Wrong, Charlemagne. Thought you were supposed... No. No fun. To call. Happiness. Eat with Jana. Crazy page. Confused day. Sit still. Suppose. Too eager to get the message. Go to Third Street. Now. Tired. Go, Hannah. The loft. Reese is coming. Reese is conflict. Go at six o'clock. Why are you... Home for ten peaceful days with a... Present of God intentions. Sore throat. She had bad through these. Go, go soon. Donut. And then leave outside, which used to be an opposite. You worry a lot. Thought the solution to Palestine was to good grief. Fine. Jerry handkerchief. Sick or his party. Have a party. Go. Omit go. Breakfast. No, didn't. Yes. Fast. Go out. Reese. After it said. Go soon. Why won't it let you get out of here? See half the letters. Crazy. It's six o'clock. See danger. Rain coming. Take an umbrella. Red. Go now. At the door. Wrong direction. A lot of around here. Wonder if you'll call. Sure would like to eat with some. Go to Connecticut. Call. Wake up. Jana, she's fasting. Can't eat with her. Day in conflict. Of she's having a party. Who? Jana Fisher. See now, do not have a party. Without. Fell off horse. No deposit. See Neoli's name in air while talking to Jana. Eat out. Well, there's either tuna fish. Prego. Or frozen steak or shopping. With Charlemagne. Telephone. Scrambled eggs. Neoli calls. We're going out to eat. Brace your supper. Go to the Galloping Gourmet. You omit tries. No ballroom. Children. Call Joanne. It's Zachary's birthday. See outline of a child in the living room while. Puzzle. Talking to Joanne. Spelled wrong. Why Arakawa? Out with Neoli. A funny feeling about the gourmet. Didn't want to go there. Understand, April. It's closed. Eat it spring. Come home. Go to the bathroom. He calls. Says the Looks. toilet seat cover. Who is prone Right front, outside. Charming. In white, across three quarters of the March. Bowl. Here, pussycat. Don't admit Neoli. Brought in the bed. An upside down day. Reese didn't. You didn't Malcolm here. Puss, do it now. Sleepy, crazy day. Wouldn't. Come. Mun. So why secure? Father dies. Go to bed. Jason Epstein. At right angles to the typewriter at Random House where... Too hot. Call Neoli. Not in the phone, says... Eat. For corduroys. Didn't take the umbrella. Bed. It's negative. Raining the next day. Call. Jim. Too, Too late. late. Says the phone in thin black outline. Hang up. Danger in May. Don't complain. Feel more. April negative. Don't complain. Give a party. One more miracle. Not your party. No milk. Walked in last night after... Sensitive. Inviting Jerry Rothenberg to have a party here. Go home. After his reading. Look for clues. One more book. Go to a convention. One more bookcase or one more book. Got an invitation to a party from... Iris. So maybe... Give a party. Apply to... To Iris. Give another. Trying to get in touch with... Champagne. To predicate. No luck. Call Phil. His phone is busy. Call back. It's still busy. Ask the phone if Very it has important. the loft address. Not information. It says... Gift. Where is my tea? Get off. Not with me. Get far out. Kathy said she felt she was prostituting herself, and she dreamt about... Our dream. Follow the leader. Vibes. She didn't want to follow the leader. She was supposed to drink coffee. Beer can. Them. We exchanged dreams. Angry. Who is that? For the party, Jerry brought corned beef, valentine ale. His poems had... Survived. And... 
Cowboy into one more. Didn't. Don't forget. Mansion survived, but every once. Stop Columbine. Says the phone. One more hour, Columbine. At two. two. I awoke. That word is so unfamiliar, can't even spell it at one, two o'clock. It's Roger Happening. Who is Columbine? 411. 46. Says the typewriter. Call Joanne. And donuts. Go third. Thirst aft. Go to the door. Joanne is at home. Paper. Says the phone in a medium size. Go. And donuts over the phone. Phil. That really kills donuts. Paper food, not Phil. Forgot the real clue. It said. Joanne. On forehead and quilt color. Hurry. And the. Crazy. Quilt. Do not. Oh. I'm a nut. I eat donuts. You believe. Reach Charlemagne. Bed. Go to grief. The corner of the quilt is hanging loose and has to be nailed. Anything not neat. Or clean. Is negative. Keep house. Trying. To. Out. Ask forgiven. To read the Sharon. Underlines. Save shorts. Tell him about Jerry being here. No luck. What do Alan say? Rich. It's. Power. Can't find someone. Crazy house. Address. Got the wrong one for. Coming. Make a list. Reese's company. Coming. Complicated. Comfy. And. No angel. Fun. Not all right. One more. Don't recollect. Blue angel. Give credit. Another new word. Big ding-a-ling. This is a period para. All the music Tuesday. It feels different. Insurance. Popped off my... Your... Forehead yesterday and a tiny... You got a bad break week. A chest color appeared on the floor. I described maple chest. How to find a New York yes... Insurance agent. Yell. Does... Low income. <laughs> mean pay taxes. Not no W. Call 411. Get... Four different. Need broker. Pay junk. Make it fun. Sis, your insurance. Call Charlemagne. Victor Records. Vito Akanchi. Appears over Victor Records. I would love to ask each of you to provide listeners to this conversation with a way in. Let's assume that our listeners have not encountered this work or even a work like it. Davey, you first. What's a sentence or two you can say by way of a sort of headnote-ish intro? Here's how you might get into this. So one way in is thinking about this work in uh, a lineage of work, especially by women writers, that's interested in rigorous dailiness, that's interested in thinking about who gets to have a daily life and what gets to be part of it, and displaying all of the texture of uh, what you get to do every day and uh, making the labor of your daily life visible. That's really a great start, Kate. We'll go to you next, but I'll just insert, um, you know, literary historically or in the history of poetic movements that would help us connect this to the work let's say of the women in the second generation of the new york school like bernadette mayer who hannah wiener's buddies with right so that really helps us in okay great kate what's a thing or two you would say that would help people get in to me it reads like a mystery or who done it Early on, she mentions this party and someone's supposed to have a party and she spends the rest of the work trying to figure out if it's she who's supposed to have the party or somebody else or who the person might be. I love that. That's that's a great, that's, I'm interested. Charles, what's a way in? So for one thing, she's of course the same generation as the first uh, generation of the New York school, generation older so than she's Bernadette. older Mayer. than Bernadette, yeah. And, and me. Um, Does that make a difference? Yeah, absolutely, because I think in a lot of ways she became better known through our generation and almost seemed like she was, but I would put her back up with terms of uh, Davies' superb term, rigorous dailiness, with James Schuyler. That's somebody I'm really interested in thinking of Hannah Reeder in connection with. Um, I would just note that um, this extension of, of the diary and the journal, a based form in terms of the high literariness is something that she was interested in uh, and that the innovation has to do with the three voices which are represented by uh, the three people reading. Perfect transition to my next question because I, I want to get back to the journalness of it but first 
let's talk about what it sounds like. Um, I was playing it, preparing for this conversation, and um, my son, who lives at home, heard it in the other room and said, how are you? He wanted to know what the technology was to have all those voices in the room. He thought I was doing some kind of um, four-way Skype or something. And then when he got in the room, he could hear everything was distinct. But so how do we hear this, Kate? You first. I mean, what's the first thing? How do you react to it? It's well, a score, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and it moves very rapidly. Um, and the speed of it really underscores both the mode of exhaustion and that of interruption that... Um, you know, so many, as you've both said, so many of her peers were practicing at that time. Hmm. Davey, take, take the next step on this. Something else that's so amazing about that recording is it's an opportunity to hear um, three women's voices together. And it makes me think about, this is a bizarre connection, but Hannah Wiener is a kind of precursor to the riot girl movement in the 90s, like mid to late 90s of thinking about like, what if all of these women's voices um, appear together. What if the entire chorus, all the voices you can hear, the idea of like all the voices that could be in the room with you are non-cis male voices. And that like totalizing speedy multiplicity is something that feels like it's uh, really bringing to life how gendered this work is. I think that Hannah would have loved to be thought of as a riot girl. She's very much a performance artist, and she could be connected up to such performance artists as Carol Lee Schneeman, who was a friend of hers, and Eleanor Anton, mm. David Anton. So that's the and Jackson McClough. Those are the There's a lot. I hear a of. lot of McClovian aspects here, which we should probably get back to. But I think Kate wanted to add something to the sound. Oh, I was just thinking um, when. Davy was speaking about the gendered quality of the text that it it made me think of uh, what's the Muriel Rokaiser line about what would happen if one woman told the truth about her life. Am I getting it right? The world would split open. Yes. Um, and if this isn't the world splitting open, I don't know what it is. Mm. So let's pivot, starting with Davy, to the content oh my gosh content of the diary what do we learn what's happening i mean did jerry rothenberg give give a a reading and then there was a party or what 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 do we learn from the scene or is that a mistake to even worry about that we learn a lot about the objects that are in the room a lot about where words appear a lot about plans that people have made and uh, imperatives, go now, eat out, have a party. We learn a lot about the people in Hannah Wiener's life. Uh, we learn, Name some, please. Um, Jerry Rothenberg appears, uh, some of those folks appear as like people who are in the room, not Phil. And some of them appear as like people who are part of a cultural uh, moment, Vito Acconci. Uh We get inf information like call Joanne, it's Zachary's birthday. So there is some New York school name dropping, mm -hmm. first name, you should know it or you yeah. don't have to know it. But then there's some real references Arakawa, mm -hmm. yep. uh, Jason Epstein, who yep. was a major editor. So are, is there a Phil distinction? Phil is Phil Glass. And Phil Glass. Is it like an O'Hara poem where we learn who's at the party? Well, but it's uncool. I mean, there's another aspect maybe to what's being said. One of the most radical elements of the extension of the diary is that she's dealing with stuff that most people, including diary writers, including women diary writers, would leave out because it's all about 
crushes, obsessions, and things that are embarrassing and things that are unredeemable as literary, just extremely, you could say quotidian or everyday, but extremely trivial. Somebody calls, I'm waiting for someone to call. All of these things that in other literary judgments might seem um, not significant enough, that's what's foregrounded. It's been suggested, but not said specifically, that that, that is a, uh, a feminist gesture that's uh, commensurate with other kinds of things that are going on at the same time, for instance, some of Bernadette's work. Um, so, Kate, can we talk about the diariness of it a little further? Sure. It, um, you know, it's sort of gestures at um, immediacy and reporting the particulars of, of thought as it moves through a moment of the day, but there are so many echoes in the language that it also shows us the degree to which she's sort of bouncing off her own language. Like, there's a lot of uh, modulating rhyme, like Ballantine and Columbine and Palestine, where you see where she's circling back um, and just sort of, you know, working with sound. Mm. Three voices. Uh, one is signaled in both editions. One is signaled by um, Roman, lower ca- mostly lowercase. The other is signaled by all caps. And the third is signaled by italics. So th- these three voices, which um, are in the typescript um, of, of, of quite a long 300-page uh, manuscript of the Clairvoyant Journal, um, I would say then you could tell from the from the performance that the Roman is her that she's the subject being bombarded by she's sort capitals. of a narrator yeah yeah before every performance she would say I see words I see words she on did people's say it here, we heard and, that but she means that she actually that was an experience she had so she'd see words on people's foreheads I interpret that to be uh, commands it's like you could say the id the superego and the ego commands comments in the italic and the and in the Roman. Her voice on the tape, that, that's what is being subjected to these competing and, and disturbing uh, and disruptive voices, uh, not, not seamless, not stream of consciousness, but breakage of consciousness. Charles Bernstein Davy opened the door to um, the use of the word in the next question I'm going to ask, the use of the word psychologically. So I'm going to say it then. So if we've got three voices, when you ha- if you have two, you have... You have, you know, I think William Carlos Williams experimented this in his famous poem, Portrait of a Lady, where he tr- one voice tries to do the portrait and the other one is saying, you can't do this. You're a modernist. People don't do this anymore. These are three voices and they're not just antagonistic. So how does anybody go about trying to hear the different positionalities that are being set up by the three voice? You don't, but you try naturally, right? And what is the psychological profile that's being offered. Well, a word that we haven't used uh, that I understand to be a both useful and maybe contentious word in folks who think about Hannah Wiener is the word disability. That's not a term that she herself used, nor a term with which she identified. Um, and the way that I think about that term, I'm going to give you like a 10-word definition from the disability scholar Rosemary Garland Thompson, which is thinking about disability as, quote, not so much a property of bodies 
as a product of cultural rules about what bodies should be or do. And I totally see Hannah Wiener as someone interested in cultural rules about what bodies and language should be or do. And I think that gets to the question about how do you listen to this? And something that I hear in your question, Alan, tell me if this is not what you meant, is how do I, as a non-disabled person, uh, listen to this work as a person who... um, doesn't see words. That's not a part of my embodied experience. And something that I love about Hannah Wiener's work is uh, the refusal of the expectation of a non-disabled reader or listener. Mm. That's really helpful. Kate, I want to turn to you about the all caps. So that is uh, super egoish, often um, commanding, often warning, uh, parental, etc. cetera. Uh, you worry a lot. Go soon. Listen. Shower, eat out. So if we just took the all caps, what would that be saying? And what role does that play in here? I mean, is it that then it creates a contrast with the others which are doing more Hannah-ish, more instinctive things? I don't know. As you said, they're not discreet. Um, They bleed together. They kind of involute together. Um, I, I did try reading them exclusively and how did that go it didn't go because so many of of the threads and the ways in which the text is commenting on itself happens across the three voices um and perhaps related to that i wanted to mention that there's so much in here about the phone and everything sort of gets conveyed and received via a phone and over time as you listen to it the phone and the speakers sort of become one and you sort of understand the poet as this transceiver mm-hmm. of messages um, because it's so all great. it's all messaging yeah. and clues and trying to interpret wow. the message received and and that which is being given um, so the phone feels really critical to me in here and like a you know, a, not a metaphor, but like a, a a piece of the poet. Yeah, that's great. Charles, uh, the three voices, the psychological implications, the all caps. Hannah Wiener herself, as Davy said, rejected the reading of her work in terms of schizophrenia. Um, she viewed herself as a avant-garde prose poet and she felt that the multiple that 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 linear single voice prose or poetry was boring and she wanted to create an electric impermeable surface that was exciting you can hear that in the reading i mentioned seeing words but the other term that you could talk about would be hearing voices so what do we associate seeing words hearing voices with well in poetry we associate it with prophecy and with the psychic she calls herself clairvoyant she was clairvoyant she viewed herself as being saying that or as a, a psychic. You're saying that from personal observation. Right. I'm also channeling her. One of the things that she would say, and I could, because I knew her so well, she would want to speak through me at this event. So I'm putting it that way. Mm. She was clairvoyant. She was psychic. She did see words. She did hear voices. And I, I Charles, think that that's true. She spoke of group mind, and it's hard for me to talk about her without feeling her presence through my mouth. Davey, what Hannah would not have called disability, 
uh, or neurodifference um, is still nonetheless behind the radicalism that Charles is identifying here. Uh, so the whatever it is, whatever that state of different mind is, it enables this avant-gardeism. There is a connection between those two. The reason why I think that could have gone wrong is I don't want to be saying, boy, I wish I were, you know, neurodifferent and I could be a real avant-garde. And, and if you're too just, you know, if you're too linear thinking, you can't do this. I'm not saying that at all. But I am inviting you to comment on the relationship. And there's an important distinction to make here between disability as a term that Hannah Wiener rejected and as a concept for describing a social relation between her embodied and psychological experience and its social reception. And um, a friend and colleague of mine, Declan Gould, is a poetic scholar who uh, works on Hannah Wiener and disability poetics and has a wonderful reading of the importance of thinking about disability to be able to understand how clairvoyant journal is received and to understand some of the pain and difficulty of being a person with different psychological abilities than other people. And something that we have to negotiate in thinking about that language is to be very clear about the fact that these were terms that Hannah Wiener rejected and that disability studies gives us a body of tools to be able to think about her social experience within the framework of disability, um, what Michael Davidson refers to as, I'm quoting him, an oppositional critique to bodily normalcy, which is absolutely what she's doing. She's refusing the idea of bodily normalcy and thinking about the tools that we have to read that refusal requires us to be careful about the language that we use and to identify carefully where we're using language that she would identify with and where we're using language that she might itself refuse. Thank you. I'd like to invite Kate and Charles to respond to this topic any way you want. Charles? Um, I think of the schizophrenic poet Maxwell Clark, who loves Hannah Wiener and says the only criticism he has of Hannah was that she didn't take kind of uh, disability pride. <laughs> he says that affectionately. I mean, she's a person of her generation, and she didn't want to be written off. I think that there are two poles within her work around the question of mental illness, schizophrenia and paranoia. Now, there's a lot of pain associated with paranoia in Hannah as a person, especially the later part of her life, uh, which uh, is important to acknowledge. Uh, and I think she didn't want to strand those things into metaphors. But paranoia is next to one's mind, paranoia. And I think that she was very much moving next to her mind so that she could it's see an, it and look at it. It's an aesthetic concept. And schizophrenia, or echnoia, let's say, is out of your mind. Schizophrenia broken and multiple. So I think that for her, those things opened up the barrier between the individual and closed in her or him or themselves and other people. So this group mind thing became more and more crucial for her. That's why you hear the different voices of other people coming through, that you can't separate the mother, the father, the sister, the friend, the person calling on the phone from yourself. You're not separate. You become uh, enmeshed, contaminated, and ecstatically identified with those other voices. Kate, if this poem talk conversation works to bring people into this poet's work, it will be because we were able to take what Charles just said and what we've all been saying and locate it in the two passages that we chose somewhat randomly. So where do we begin to find para 
Noya here. I mean, are there some passages that you, when you read it, you underlined or took notes on that would help us begin to talk about the text in this way? The whole thing reads to me like an anxiety dream, like where you're trying to run, but your legs don't move, like you're running through Mm. glue or something. Like she's trying to move toward something, some some kind of answer or um, place that all of this text is is holding her back from. Mm. And the other thing I wanted to point out is another uh, neuroscientific quality to this text um, that I was thinking about, which is synesthesia. You see places where it, it almost is literally indicating that experience, like on... You know, she talks about, it said, Joanne on forehead in quilt color, and later on something happens in chest color. But it made me think about her seeing words, literally, I, th- I, I suppose Charles on the interior of her forehead, and how that's almost like a one-to-one synesthetic experience of language itself. But it's um, not, at least in her most overt expressions, the most interesting aspect of the interior forehead, which she gets into in a later work, but she sees it on other people's foreheads. Oh, right. The she says that. words on other people's foreheads. I, I, I do think that the issue of anxiety is very important to understand. It's like the kind of sleeplessness and, and the thoughts that run through your mind. There is an aspect of her work that is a radical rethinking of Mises in the Homeric, Eric Auerbach sense, that this is what consciousness is. She's really interested in consciousness. Love the Julian Jaynes book, The Origin of the Mind, in the, the, the Origin of Consciousness by Carol Mond. That's what she would talk about. Her psychic ability, though, would be, she wrote in one of her late poems, Felix is three, E-E-E, he gets his PhD. Doesn't have it yet, but Wait, probably will get Fel- one. Felix yeah, Bernstein. She's referring to Felix, as she says. Felix is three, he gets his PhD, and he's about to get his PhD, at least we hope so. Within She's about really prophetic. Half, so huh? That's what she meant, but she meant that as prophetic, whatever it is, and there's that it com- comes out. But she meant her, her prophecy, her clairvoyance in that way, that she would know things. She would tell you what was going to happen uh, ahead of time, so... Did, I mean, did she call this automatic writing? Did she use that word? Did she call on the symbolist tradition when she was? No, she was. So, I'm she sorry, was surrealist. remarkably against and uninterested in previous writing. She was a really kind of classic avant-gardist, so she was doing something new that hadn't been done. So let me take up the automatic writing thing because I think this is very relevant. Because it's off. She's often a, but, compared. Right, or but, that's but, the term but, is but she calls the work clairvoyant. So. It can't be both. I mean, I'm, right. I'm against the concept of automatic writing. What did this, clairvoyant but, mean well, so to her? L- let me, so clairvoyant means it's psychically charged. So, we, you know, you could say, for her, I think it was, uh, I had a different 60s attitude. A lot of people believe in things that we that I would consider to be supernatural. I consider her to be supranatural, but she certainly had a different perspective on it. So let me make that 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 clear but she certainly was engaged with me but it means you give the text the kind of agency to mean something that's beyond simply the detritus and the and the the nervous flow of consciousness and it pushes back so for example we could have this conversation as we've had and then look at these phrases not information, it says. So she's telling you that. She's saying not information. It isn't about information. It's about the, the psychic structure of consciousness as reflected in the text. Then she says, this is really, you know, kind of pushes it, but stop Columbine. 
one more hour Columbine. So, I mean, what is that? I mean, of course, I hear that in terms of something that happened well after she wrote it. But from her I point mean, of view. That's the only way to read it. And yet you make sure that you check out the dates on Wikipedia and you realize it couldn't be the flower because it doesn't make any sense. The plant, Columbine. What the heck is well, it? Well, I would think that it, it's, it's as a literary historian, which I am more than, than a clairvoyant, I would say it can't mean that, but I would say that the text insists that it does mean that. It does. Then she says about this question of, of, of disability, and this is, you know, leaps out at you. Do not, N-U-T, like a nut, do not, oh, I'm a nut, I eat donuts. So anything not neat or clean is negative, which is, again, an ideological thing. So she's speaking to these issues. Go to grief. Charlemagne, Charlemagne, Palestine. And that was my experience talking to her. You could go wherever you want in, in what was happening. And then she would come back and have these things which directly spoke to our seemingly uh, superior historical critical view. And she's already always there. And, and the work speaks back. That isn't automatic writing. That's something else. It's, it's poetry. I was looking at where Charles was reading from, and um, this is incredibly reductive, but uh, seeing that there are constellations of meaning within the text, like Kathy felt like she was prostituting herself, and then we quickly have femme and angry and survive, and you can make kind of a cluster of meaning in the text there, should you choose to. Um, And as I look around, I can find more kind of constellations. Can you describe what kind of reading slash interpreting that is? Because, yes, you can see the Kathy Acker reference and then start to piece together what you know about Kathy Acker and it makes sense and it's saying something as content. That's a pretty interesting method for us of reading. I mean, when you're confronted with a text like this, you have to cluster it in some way and look for these clues to which she's referring and you know, she might not have put them there, but that is how reading works and comprehension works. So we find them regardless of her intention. Um, I mean, you could use the word uncanny, and I like a constellation, but she creates a situation in which the uncanny is present, however she manages to do it. As a great artist, a lot of reasons that have to do with her personal life, the experiences that she had in the multiple identities that we've talked about, but as, a, as an artist, and that's certainly what she was and identified as, she created something that allows for this uncanny ex- experience that, that the work starts to talk back at you. Anything not neat and then in italic or clean is negative. So this is messy work, right? This, this is – so she's talking about negativity. She's talking about kind of a, a negative – Tight typing that goes on, and she's pushing back against that. Kathy said she felt she was prostituting herself, and she dreamt about. I dreamed. Follow the leader. She didn't want to follow the leader. She was supposed to drink coffee. We exchanged dreams. Angry. Who was that? For the party, Jerry brought corned beef, Valentine ale. His poems had survived. Cowboy into one more. Didn't. Don't forget. Mention survive, but every once. Stop Columbine. Says the phone. One more hour, Columbine. At two. two. I awoke. That word is so unfamiliar, can't even spell it at one, two o'clock. It's Roger happening. Who is Columbine? 411. 46. Says the typewriter. Call Joanne. And donuts. Davey, we started out, or almost started out, by 
categorizing Hannah to make it, for me, it was more comfortable when you said there's a certain dailiness here of that time and it fits with the New York school. But now we're saying something very different, which is that this is very unusual. And in fact, as Charles reminded us, consciously not indebted to previous modes. So what, I mean, I don't want to say, is it poetry, but where must it fit? Can it fit? What what do we do with it? I mean, it can, of course, fit and not fit. That there are certainly echoes between what's happening here and the contemporaneous work of someone like Bernadette Mayer, who has some similar concerns, but also something really different is happening. And I um, want to pick up on something that Charles said when we had that initial conversation of, like, maybe there are these parallels of thinking about Hannah Wiener as being sort of more appropriately thought of in dialogue with first-generation New York school poets And something that we haven't talked about is how much of New York there is in these poems. And the fact that if this is 1974, if this is the mid-1970s, this is near bankruptcy in New York City. This is heavily disinvested, uh, chaotic, ruptured, uh, non-functional New York City. And so if you're uh, asking, as uh, she is at the end of the April 4th entry, how to find a New York yes, insurance agent, not now, call 411, mm. get four different need broker paid junk, make it fun. She's interacting with a like totally non-functional city government. Totally. This is the city government yes. that's appealing to the federal government for aid and being denied it. This is this this is the New York of um, 100,000 people's houses burning in the Bronx. And there is a relationship between the disorder that we see here and the excess and just like what the city looks and sounds like at the time that Hannah Wiener isn't thought of as an urbanist poet, but you could certainly make a case for it. Yeah, That's I, very I, powerful. I, I, I love that. Let's put a star, a couple of stars on that. What, 411, what is that? When you call 411 in the 70s, what, it, what, what happened? Isn't that fix the pothole? Inf- no, no four one one is information. Oh, that's information. information. Of course. Oh, silly me. Three one one. Yeah, you call it three one one. Three one one is later. Four one. Well, she's prophetic. Not so information. It's four one one. Not information. So four one one forty six says the typewriter, and prior to that is who is Columbine. I just I'm f- a little freaked out about seeking information and this typewriter. Maybe because of the inability to type it right, because of the. Uh, manic state you're in or because you cannot, uh, you know, words so unfamiliar, I can't even spell them. And so seeking information becomes impossible if you've transcribed the phone number wrong. And, you know, like it's very hard to function in a world, especially this particular city, the world of this particular city at this particular time, to get any, extract any information that's going to be useful out of it. It's really compelling. All right, so we four could talk forever about Hannah Wiener in this work, but I'd like to ask each of you to say one more thing about it, something you haven't had a chance to say that you plan to say but haven't yet. So, Kate, you first. Um, I'll just say a word about the title of the work, Clairvoyant Journal. Um, Clairvoyance, typically casting forward into the future and a journal recording the recent past. Um, And if here those two terms cancel each other out in some way or, you know, smooth over and mesh together, then you have um, presence. And um, that 
to me is what's illustrated here and that it, that it, it is so much in line with her contemporaries work this illustration of presence that began with Stein and moved through this period cool i'm glad you mentioned stein cuz that hasn't been said yet that word and it's really relevant i think thank you kate davy um something in dialogue with that thinking about presence uh is just how relentless the imperatives are, especially to go and do things. Go early. Go. Where you will mean ensure. the all caps. Go at six. Mostly all in caps, but not entirely. Go to Third Street, which is italics, not in caps. Go out. Omit. Go. Go soon. Go now. Go to the Galloping Gourmet. Go to the bathroom. Go to bed. And it's useful and interesting to not be able to place that language and to think of most. it's mostly in caps and that – so if we read it as what's appearing – on surfaces, on other people's foreheads, on the edge of the telephone, are commands, are a kind of encouragement to continue to exist and an encouragement to have faith in this exact and precise form of existence. And like, there seems to be a mutual encouragement between seeing the words and recording them that in their in the utility of their existence and in being able to eke out a daily life following command to command from the language that she sees written. And that relentlessness feels like both part of what's useful to other poets about this work and part of its specificity. Thank you, Davey. Charles, you get a bonus, um, a final thought, and also just, if you don't mind, a word or two about the different editions, I think. Another frame related to this, which we didn't get into, would be information theory. So the idea of entropy and noise and what that has to do and would be to also put her in her in, in the context of conceptual visual art of the 60s, which is sort of where she came from before she moved into poetry. Um, I think the work also has a lot to do with the typewriter and the typewriter uh, that she wrote the pages on. You can see the full edition of the journal online at, at, uh, um, at, at the archive that it's in by going to the Hannah Wiener EPC page. The Clairvoyant Journal um, in the wonderful Angel Hair edition changed the line breaks. And uh, this is an odd thing Innocently. to say. What, uh, Innocent, they well, just Hannah did what they approved could. it, actually, yeah. but uh, it was because they did a six by nine book. But right. the manuscripts were eight and a half by 11. So the French edition, which you can um, check out on the EPC page, uh, we restore the line breaks. So I would just say in one final phrase about this, that it's concrete prose in Marjorie Perloff's term. That is to say, the full visual organization of the page is like a poem. So it matters where the caps and the italic are. It matters where the line breaks are because it, 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 it's, it's organized that way as a typewriter work. So with the new edition, you can see the way she imagined these eight and a half by 11 typewriter pages with her line breaks or visual organization restored. And that precision or obsession or combination of the two produces what is in effect a score for performance, for reading in multiple voices and therefore connects back to the aforementioned Jackson McClough or Fluxus scores, um, where again, though it is chance operation driven, as opposed to the hyperrealism of consciousness, it produces something quite similar um, as a precise score that has to be performed a certain way. Right, and it's not prose, if you mean by prose, that the end lines are, uh, the, the line bricks are not there. It's not have because to, it have is to designed. The, the, that's, it, right. that's right. That's right. Um, my final thought is fairly 
closely attending to a phrase that, I, for me, evidences perfectly what happens when the all caps and the italics and the Roman narrative canonists comes together and mixes. Um, this is toward the end of the April 4th, maybe two-thirds down the page, which is very field-like, trying, all caps, to out italicize, ask forgiven to read the underlines save. That is as close to forgive the word incoherent in the tripartite three voice id superego ego arrangement that we're trying to hear, some of us trying to hear when we hear the rest. There's so much going on. I'm not going to do a close reading of it now, but I'm just going to suggest that anybody listening to it can probably start a close reading trying to out... If out is a command, that's pretty something, right? Uh, ask forgiven to read the underlines. Save. It's a meta reference to how this needs to be performed. Well, we like to end poem talk with a minute or two of gathering paradise. This is a chance for us to spread wide our narrow hands, to gather a little something really poetically good, to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world. So who would like to gather some paradise First, I, I would put forward uh, something I mentioned earlier, just thinking about it now, which is Maxwell Clark. Maxwell Clark is a young um, schizophrenic poet, queer schizophrenic poet, I guess is the way he would identify, um, and uh, who does this incredible kind of sprung lyric poetry. Roof Book published a book of his a couple of years ago, and the EPC, that's writing.upen.edu, Slash EPC. Just go to the the digital library, and you can see two digital books of Maxwell Clark. Thank you, Davy. I'm going to recommend an essay that came out recently uh, this spring. Uh, its title is "Not to Discover Weakness is the Artifice of Strength: Emily Dickinson, Constraint, and a Disability Poetics." Uh, it came out in the journal J19, Journal of 19th Century Americanists. Its author is Claire Mullaney. Uh, and if you are a person who, to, for whom this sounds exciting, but you do not have access to a university library, send me an email. I'm easy to find, and I'll send it to you. It's a really wonderful reading of Dickinson and disability poetics, and also offers some uh, tools uh, for thinking with and about disability and um, generations of poetry carefully in ways that I think might also uh, bear out in Hannah Wiener's work. Fantastic. Kate, gather some paradise. Well, I'm just going to recommend to you what I've been reading. Um, and this isn't necessarily a book that needs boosting, but um, Terrence Hayes' To Float in the Space Between, which came out from Wave Books last year, is a um, extended... Uh, somewhat procedural engagement with um, Etheridge Knight's work and particularly um, one poem. And it uh, is sort of a genealogy of Hayes's poetic influences and sort of um, contemporaneous poetic moments in, in Knight's life. Um, but it's really in the vein of, or in the lineage of my Emily Dickinson, Susan Howe's work, um, possibly also Christian Hockey's ventricle. Um, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. I've been writing about it recently. Fantastic. Um, I have two uh, gatherings of paradise. One is um, the Baroness Elsa von Freitag Loringhoven, which should certainly be added to this. The manuscripts 
They're not quite as designed as this, but the manuscripts at Maryland, uh, which have not been adequately reproduced in the few editions we have, um, are very much like this. There's a lot of voices going on in the head of the Baroness. Um, and also, uh, Kate Colby's book, The Arrangement, which, wow, what a book. What's the press? Four-way books. Four-way books. And if you, you know, Google it, and if you're avoiding Amazon, it's easy to do, but you can also just find, there are many ways you can get a copy of the book, and I highly recommend it. Thank you. Yeah, congratulations on that book. Well, that's all the trying to out, ask, forgiven to read we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Davey Niddle, Charles Bernstein, and Kate Colby, and to Poem Talk's directors and engineers today, Zach Cardner, Andrew DePass, and Iwe Chai, and to Poem Talk's editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner. And a shout out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their very generous support of Poem Talk. In our next episode, Jonathan Dick, Selena Dyer, and Jerry Rothenberg, the aforementioned, will join me to talk about Michael McClure's Ghost Tantras. This is Al Filris, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk. <laughs>